Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. My name is Gabriel White with the Utah Trial Lawyers. I'm here with Scott Powers and Danny Sepernich, both of the magnificent law firm of Snow Christensen and Martineau. And today we're talking about a topic that, as, as trial lawyers, is close to all of our hearts, which is the way that law firm structures and law firm practices impact the development of young attorneys. It's, I think we've all had experiences. I, I recall a good friend of mine when it had been about out of law school about four years, walking down the street with him, ran into him, and he, he leaned over and told me, he's like, yeah, it was an exciting day yesterday. He's like, I got to sit in and watch my first deposition. And, you know, I was like, wait, you took your first deposition yesterday? No, I got to watch. And he was at a firm in town with about 100 attorneys. And I thought to myself, wow. And then, you know, I tried to change the subject, but he asked me, he's like, so how many depositions do you do? And I, I probably at the time was doing, you know, maybe 75, 100 a year, either defending or, or taking. I mean, you know, you guys know how that is. And, and um, you know, it was amazing to me, the structure. And then seeing situations when we get to trial, it sort of amplifies that procedure because you'll get into into trial with some firms and it's obvious that this attorney who's just barely hit 10 years out of law school has had this case and suddenly he or she this is the first time they've ever been uh you know they first chaired a case and so there are a lot of sort of standard practices and rules that they don't get i mean i have seen an attorney and this it doesn't even necessarily apply to you know younger attorneys only but some older attorneys just never wind up trying that many cases at those firms and i've seen an attorney with 20 years out read his opening statement from a piece of paper to the jury standing at the podium for 45 minutes um probably the least effective opening statement um i mean i think he could have actually taken out jurors one by one and waterboarded them and probably wound up with a better impression in front of the jury than uh, he got from reading his opening statement. So, Powers, I mean, what has your been your experience with? Or, I mean, we started with Powers, Danny. What has been your experience with development, your firm, and and developing trial skills as a young lawyer? How long have you been out of law school? Seven years. Seven years. Okay. And and how does your firm go about doing that sort of? on your feet trial training and and how do you feel about that? Um, So I think there's a lot of different ways. It partly depends on what what practice you end up focusing on. So I kind of skipped this introductory period, but I think a lot of our associates have a first few years where they're doing a lot of different type of work. Um, And we have, I think there's a pretty good opportunity either to handle small claims cases um, our younger associates can handle those. They're often, you know, just like the bench trial all by themselves and get some experience that way of having somebody oversee them, but they're the one actually going and taking evidence. And um, so there's that. We also have some smaller insurance files that I think young associates get put on and can kind of run the whole case. And if it ends up going to trial, they get to really 
handle the trial, but they have some supervision. Um, and then when it comes to larger cases, uh, even if they're not <clears throat> like second or third chairing the trial, uh, being really involved in the pretrial process, and I know it's slightly different than standing up and arguing, but getting to do the motions and the jury instructions and then maybe arguing those parts and sitting in at trials and watching. Um, so I think, I think we have a lot of different ways that people get that like actual trial experience. Um, the difficulty, I've had three or four trials that we've been really close to actually having go, and everyone has either settled or we've won some big motion right at the last minute. And so I've never actually had a trial, but in the cases that we were preparing for, I was going to be able to take witnesses and divide up the work with the, uh, the more senior shareholder who I was working with, so. Um, and my experience, I think, was a little unique because I came to my last firm before I went out on my own. Um, it's been about five months now as a lateral. And so even though for some reason, I, so I'd only been out like 10 months, so I didn't have that much experience. But everybody assumed when I asked them about why is my experience so different than everybody else? I was like, well, you came as a lateral. Like, people would just drop files off in my office and say, hey, go do this. Let me know how it turns out. And I was also assigned to an attorney who's a great attorney, and I consider him a, uh, one of my mentors, who his philosophy, because I think he had been brought up this way in the law as well, was, you know, the best way to learn is to struggle a little bit and to kind of have to figure out things on your own. So I remember being three or four years out and being off on my own for a week-long trial in a construction defect case in St. George, um, you know, where we were coordinating witnesses and we had experts and we were bringing in, you know, all sorts of things. And I, the client leaning over to me five minutes before he took the stand and whispering, actually, I don't think I had that conversation. I think that was my secretary and we fired her years ago and I don't know where she is. And having to figure out, okay, so how do we get this key piece of testimony in kind of on the fly? At, at the time, it was like, okay, I wish I had more help. But at the same time, in retrospect, I think I learned an incredible amount. And, you know, I, I will also say that the longer the trials that I've been in, um, the more I, I've learned. I just got done in March with a three-week medical malpractice trial, which was... Um, obviously wrongly decided um, and I feel like you know I've done seven or eight probably jury trials in my career and about the same number of bench trials we tended to have you know the plaintiff's practice you tend to have more cases that go because you get to pick your clients you get to pick your cases and you get to decide you know alright which issues am I going to push which issues am I going to not um, those longer trials, this, this one that I did, I mean, first off, I got to do it with Roger Christensen, who for me was kind of a, to me, it was a, a bit of a legend, at least the firm and in the legal, com the MedMal legal community. Um, so I learned a lot from him and, you know, we sat down six months before the trial and I had done almost all the depositions that had happened in the last two or three years and he's like okay which witnesses do you want what do you want to do at trial if you want to do all of the witnesses and I'll just open and close you can do that 
if you want to divvy them up, you know, so long as you don't get too overwhelmed, you can do as much as you want. You can open, you can close, you can do whatever. Um, I'm confident that you have the skills to do it. And just being in that situation where it was like you, you know, had to respond on your feet and you had to get up and say, all right, I think this is what we're going to be dealing with today, but the judge may come in and completely change that or a witness may completely change their testimony and we may have to argue some other issue. Um, I think you learn a lot more and I, I think that's very difficult to do if you're working with attorneys. And I don't think it's firms. I think it's individual attorneys that are the key because usually in firms, firms don't have, even the really big firms, don't have policies about, you know, sometimes clients get involved and intervene, but a lot of times, even at the really big firms, they don't have policies about, okay, you know, this whoever has been here the longest has to control has to be first chair or has to control strategy at trial or has to take most witnesses. It's the individual attorneys. And being with, working with an attorney who will say to you, okay, well, you're coming to trial, um, which witnesses do you want? Well, what do you mean? Well, you're not just going to be my research monkey. I want you to do some witnesses, get some experience. And powers, you are now in a position where if you ever went to trial, and I know these construction defect cases you do probably uh, when they get to a certain size the one that I did that I was talking about earlier was very small it was in one individual house and but once you get to a certain size they never go to trial because it would cost more to try the case than it would to settle it by a factor of 10 but I mean do you ever have the situation where you're going into a trial and you have an associate that's helping you and you have to decide, all right, do I give this person witnesses or do I let this person argue this motion they wrote? You know, I haven't been in that position yet. Um, most of my practice, believe it or not, builds up to a point where ADR is almost always the, the preferred option. Rarely does, does it get past ADR. And, and, you know, what discovery typically does is you get everything out on the table during discovery, during which I frequently use associates to help me establish the record. And once the record is established, rather than put it in the hands of, of a jury, which is always a threat, but it's just that threat, right? Because we all have, the, have all the cards on the table, we all use, use probabilities and say, okay, well, we've done the work, we've incurred the expense, let's, let's sit down and talk about it. Let me ask you this question, and I'll ask you both of you. Do you feel like if somebody has written the motion, absent, and I'm not talking about the situation with summer clerks written it, and you'd have to go through some special procedure to get him admitted, but I'm talking with an associate. Somebody's written a motion, and you think they did a good job with the motion. Should the person who wrote it argue it? I think it depends. I think that should be the general practice, but a lot of what we do, I, I write a lot of our motions, but... Sean has such background knowledge about the client and the facts that sometimes dates back to like the early 1900s, if not before that. Um, and obviously, he doesn't go that far back, but he has experience drafting How things. How old is this gentleman you work with? <laughs> um, no, he doesn't have the experience that far back, but he was involved in something in you know the early 90s, and he has was all of he this there? information. Was he there to adjudicate the water rights when Moses divided the Red Sea? He said, this one shall be. No, but I think uh, we'll talk about 
motions in that context and he just has this wealth of information that there's no possible way I could prepare for the same questions that he might get that he just knows because he actually did it he was there when it was done in the first instance and so I think sometimes there's concerns like that that weigh in favor of having somebody else argue it but the general practice is if you can and it makes sense have the person who wrote the motion argue it but I think there, there can be strategic reasons that that doesn't work in every case. I, I think that, I guess that's true where there, there's a potential for things that are outside of the motion to be part of the argument. But Which my, happens a lot. I think that happens a lot more than, it, even if the court just wants this background information and it's not particularly relevant or the other side brings it up because they've also been in, involved for decades, um, it, it's hard to have somebody brand new who doesn't have that same history. I can say the one or two times where I've gotten burned arguing a motion where a judge asked me something and expected that I would know it, and I didn't, it was because somebody else had written the motion, and I had prepared as best I could, but there was something Apparently in one of the... as best you could. Well, you could there, was, the case. there was... I, I did read the cases, did but you? you don't read it with the same... I mean, when you're writing a motion, you're reading it with the with the idea, okay, what language from this can I put in here? What is harmful? What do I need to stay away from? And when you're going over it, a lot of times the re- part of the reason you had the associate draft the motion is because you didn't have time to do that kind of in-depth research. And so when you get up there to the podium, the judge says, all right, I understand you cite this case. But what about this language from further down in the case? See, I, I've never been stung in a situation where I had somebody else argue it, or I'm sorry, write it, but then I argue it. Rather, it, it's usually the converse, and the, the reason I say that is I typically want whoever knows the case the best to be in a position to talk about what the court wants to know. Mm-hmm. And I think if you prepare properly with regard to what's in the motion, but you're the person that knows the case the best, you're going to be in the best position to handle but if whatever a- weird stuff the court invents. And you and I both know, you get into these cases and you have a, you know, a dispositive motion, the court's sometimes going to invent some stuff that just comes right out of life. That's right. And yeah. if you don't know your case, forget your motion. I'm not. There's a certain federal judge who is famous for... Are you talking about Judge Jenkins? I'm not talking about any particular judge, Mr. White. I'm just saying there there may be a particular everybody knows that there may That's, be a particular judge federal judge who will take your pleadings, pat it on the head, and then say, okay, well, what I really want to know is X. Who cares? You wrote the motion. Who cares if well, that guy knows the motion really, really well? He's going to be surprised if he's not the one that knows the case. The okay, and I will say there are certain judges, and Jenkins not the only one on the federal bench. There's one other. Judge and the federal judge, Judge Wallops, tends to go back to the pleadings a lot. I said nothing well. about any particular judge. Well, I don't think these are negative things, so <laughs> I, I don't have any problem saying who it is. But, like, I think um, that in those situations, my my approach is, yeah, I better know the case. I better know the motion. I better, I better know the pleadings. I better know everything. And I better write the damn motion myself. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Most lawyers are never available when you need them. The Utah Trial Lawyers do things differently. We handle personal injury, commercial and criminal cases, and we take them all very seriously. Other law firms assign your case to a paralegal or secretary and put that person in charge of managing your case. Getting an actual attorney on the phone can be a nightmare, no matter how important your case. At the Utah Trial Lawyers, every case is important and every client gets our full attention. We take cases to trial, and for that, you need a lawyer that is paying attention. 
you need the Utah Trial Lawyers. Each client of Utah Trial Lawyers has their individual attorney's personal cell phone number. You can talk directly to your attorney about your case anytime, day or night. If we do miss your call, we will get back to you within 24 hours. It doesn't matter if you call on a weekend, holiday, during the zombie apocalypse, or the literal end of the world. The Utah Trial Lawyers are here when you need us. Because I know that, yeah, I could be questioned about pleadings that were filed 10 years ago in the case and what they say. I could also be questioned about particular language from from the from one of the cases that I cite. But I mean I think that's easy. You just you read the cases and you talk with the person who wrote the motion. We I we do this a lot where if I do write something and somebody else is arguing it, we have a argument prep session where I go through and I say here are all the things I think the judge is going to talk about. Here are our weak points, here are our strong points. Know this, know that, know this. And that person's ready to go. I, my, I mean, maybe it's a matter of style and we're just never going to get to an agreement on it. My, my philosophy is that if at all possible, the person who writes the motion should do the argument. Now, now there may be cases, there may be with so much detail, the two, ty- two areas that come to mind are maybe med mal and, and construction defect and maybe water law falls into this too. Uh, I, I don't know. I know that there is a thing called water law, and I know it's very important, and that's the extent of what I know about water law. Um, but uh, I, I, I would say every time I'm trying to argue something somebody else has, has written, I feel like I'm taking a risk. Just because I, I will never know the cases as well as they know them, because I didn't spend 20 hours writing this motion. There's no way I'm going to spend... I mean, no, no rational client, especially a client who's playing by the hour, is going to pay 20 for 20 hours for that person to write that motion and 20 hours for me to read it and get up to speed because they're going to say, why the hell didn't you just write the motion then? you got to get up to speed faster. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just saying that's, that's, there's a risk there. But, I mean, how can law firms, back to the original topic, how can, in this age of reduced trials, and obviously one answer is to try more cases, um, and I think from if the from the plaintiff's perspective, um, there are so many plaintiffs' firms. As starting my own firm and investigating advertising and marketing techniques, there are so many firms out there right now where each attorney, you know, the the hallmark of this is you'll see there'll be four or five attorneys and there'll be fifteen paralegals in their firm photo, and then you talk to them and they're each handling two three hundred cases apiece um, where they just cannot have the kind of credibility with adjusters as you can have if you say yeah I uh, tend to go to trial three four times a year Um, you know we set a level that the client is comfortable settling for and if we can't get there I'm happy to recommend to the client that we go try this case and take a chance with the jury and we'll go focus group it and we'll, we have the skills because we've done it, you know, I mean, that's at our firm as we've tried to set it up and going through the practice. And I think it would be an interesting podcast to do sometime um, where we could talk about, maybe you guys could ask some questions of me and maybe Dan, because he set up his own firm before coming here about, about this. But as, as you set up your own firm, thinking about, all right, what's the identity going to be? 
I mean, what is your, you know, and how are people going to respond? And our experience has been if adjusters, if opponents know that you have experience at trial and that you're willing to go to trial, you don't look at trial as some big, scary, terrifying, you know, once in a every two or three year event, but something that happens two, three, four times a year. Um, you're much more likely, even in settlement discussions and those ADR discussions, to get a better offer. I mean, you and I both know people in the, even in the construction defect case, where almost nothing gets tried, where when you talk with them and when you deal with them, they're almost always, you get the impression they're willing to take this case all the way to trial and they wind up with better results. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting conundrum. Any, any closing thoughts from either of you about how law firms can better spread those responsibilities around to build better trial lawyers? I think they just need to look into the future. Um, you know, if you've got those, the, you know, the, the gray hairs who have the trial experience, given that fewer and fewer trials appear to be happening, you know, they really need to make an effort to the extent they want their law firm and their practice to continue to thrive. They need to make an effort to bring those people on board and then put them in a position to get that experience. Danny? Where it exists. I agree. And I I guess this is maybe a controversial thing, so it's going to start a whole other podcast, but I don't think that more experience is always better. I, more is better, but I've seen plenty of people that are at solo or small firms that jump in early and don't have any mentorship. And... Yeah, they've done a lot more trials than I have, but I don't know that that makes them a better trial lawyer because they no, never learned true. the right way to do it. So I think there's a sweet spot in there of actually learning from somebody who knows what they're doing and developing good habits and good skills rather than just doing it early and often and doing it wrong yeah. early and often. <laughs> no, and, I, and, I, and I'll say I, I've seen the same thing from a lot of these firms that, that you know, like I said, there's two or three hundred cases, and yeah, they may go to trial every once in a while, but there's no one there. I mean, I was asked to evaluate this firm for somebody who was thinking about going over there to help them run part of their practice, and I noticed that the only people with more than two years' experience, and they were trying to build a, they had a, said so they were bringing in, unless he was lying to me, they were bringing in, you know, about a million and a half dollars a year in, in PI money. Um, the only people at the firm that had more than two years experience were a uh, family lawyer, somebody who'd never done a PI case that I was aware of in, a, in, in his life, and a patent lawyer. And I was just like, oh my gosh, if you guys are trying cases, please, I, I somehow want to be on the other side of that because I'm going to destroy you. Um, so I think there's definitely something to be said for getting that experience and making sure that, that you know, it's not just practice that makes perfect, but perfect practice makes perfect. Well, that has been another episode of the uh, Trial Lawyer Podcast. Make sure and tune in, sign up, subscribe through iTunes, and thank you very much for listening.